Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Vosliatis. I'm Mr. Copeland. Today we're going to be diving into World War I and its aftermath from 1914 to 1920 and how the United States is now involved in world affairs. Here we go. Okay, so um, we're just going to recap very, very quickly Europe's entry into this war. And as you probably have heard and recalled in your global history course, it was based on the tenets of Maine. So just make sure that you understand militarism, alliances, imperialism, and nationalism were the macro factors that really caused World War I, along with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Yes, that final spark was the thing that caused the domino effect of um, one country declaring war on another, um, Serbia getting involved, Russia, Germany, all the way down the lines where we have the central powers and the allies initially um, starting the war in 1914. So we're going to focus more on how the United States entered into this war. And of course, long-standing tradition, as we've learned, is neutrality, especially in Europe. Was since Washington's time of staying clear of entangling affairs is going to be called into question during this time, that at this point, a lot of people thought it was just going to be a summer little war. So at first, the United States is going to issue uh, what I like to call a shaky neutrality. Under the President Woodrow Wilson at the time, a Democrat, he's going to publicly state neutrality uh, along the lines with George Washington. He does not going and want, not want to have any interest being caught again in the summer little war. Similarly to earlier conflicts, we also want to maintain trade with Britain and France during this. So you have a situation in 1915, we're bouncing back from a recession. We want to emerge in this new free trade policy during this era now that we are expanding around the world. So technically we're trading with all available countries in Europe, but Britain and France we had a very special relationship with up until now. And the important thing to talk about, uh, to note about this relationship is that it's not just trade, but it's also investment. So bankers like J.P. Morgan are going to provide up to $3 billion in secured credit lines to Britain and France. And the reason why I'm making this a big deal is because when you have a loan out to a nation and they're fighting a war, you're going to have an economic stake in them like staying afloat or at least being around to pay back those finances. Exactly. So while we publicly stated neutrality, our financial, our purse pockets showed otherwise. And that wasn't necessarily governmental policy, but individual businesses in America right. that now have a vested interest in maybe um, countries that we aren't officially affiliated with to do well. So this policy became increasingly difficult to characterize during the war. You have the um, Britain and Germany establishing these blockades of a sense of each other's ports to establish war zones and international waters, What is a, where pe um, people are allowed to trade and where they are not. Getting supplies from other countries was an effort to try and prevent as part of the war effort, is that if Germany could block off trade for Britain, it could help the, their cause in the war. So this actually affects the United States trade merchants, especially ships where we have 
um, a lot of goods confiscated and even destroyed when we're involved in trade in both these countries. And that's where we bring in submarine warfare for the first time. Right. So the main cause of our entry into war is basically unrestricted submarine warfare by the Germans. And they're going to declare the areas surrounding the British Isles a war zone, and they're going to order any submarine captains to fire upon unauthorized ships. The way submarines were structured at the time, it becomes very difficult to kind of emerge out of the depths of the blue without being fired upon. So a lot of German captains would be forced to kind of make the game time decisions to either allow merchant ships to pass through or not. And the, the discerning between a civilian ship and a warship was very difficult. So many German captains just decided to err on the side of caution by sinking any type of ships that were in that area. And that's what led to the Lusitania crisis. So on May 7, 1915 is when Lusitania is sunk. 128 American passengers drown as a result. So this immediately is an issue for Wilson. There's a public outcry. He has to con uh, condemn the attacks by Germany and demand reparations for the lives lost. But it doesn't go much further than that. And then this leads to other sinkings. It ends up being almost like a warning. Please don't do this again. Right. And eventually it becomes the Sussex Pledge where there's a promise to give proper uh, warning to to these ships in the future. That happens after the Arabic is sunk as well as the Sussex in 1916. So initially the outrage that we associate with the Lusitania was not the immediate um, cause of our involvement in the war because it took a year, two years later when we finally get involved. Now keep in mind the Germans are going to want the United States to stay out of this war. They're already fighting a two-front war. They're very upset. They're worried that they might lose this. So they kind of offer uh, like a, an olive branch to the United States through the form of the Sussex Pledge, which is a promise to, uh, to give proper warning to all unauthorized ships that are entering into the prescribed war zone. We will learn later that the Germans will renege on their own promise, which prompts an immediate a declaration of war by them. But there's a lot of people now talking about war because of the continued loss of American lives. Some people were trying to suggest maybe we should just start declaring war. I mean, they are killing Americans. We ought to kind of throw our, our hat in the ring, so to speak, especially when we were so supportive of Britain and France. So one of the major groups calling for war during this era immediately after Lusitania sunk were Republicans that were the hawkish party of this era. Um, but the realists pushed back saying that, you know, why we should get into war? Well, the main thing is Germany overtakes and becomes the major um, power within Europe, that's going to affect us negatively because we have such a vested interest in British naval power and the, our relationship with the British be, is so important for our involvement around the world. So these are the, the groups that are, are um, calling for war because of the necessity of defending not just European sovereignty, but also United States interests. Some gave more measured options, like the Democrats, who had feared funding a large army and navy since the inception of our republic. Wilson wanted to protect U.S. commercial interests without upsetting his base. He, so he's going to call for preparedness instead of war initially. By June 1916, he's going to convince Congress to pass the National Defense Act, which increases the regular army to 175 100,000 uh, people. Congress will approve the construction of over 50 warships in just one year. However, any form of uh, open declaration was out of the question during Wilson, especially during his election year that we will find out later. And William J. Bryan and the Populist Party were still a huge, significant um, segment of the political establishment in this era and still had a lot of weight in terms of what they wanted. And his followers were often calling for 
um, absolute peace, no preparedness, no war efforts, because the, the, the America first mentality largely comes from this populist idea that we don't want innocent American boys to right. die for a European war. It's not our fight. Let's stay out of it. And especially, historically, the Western farmers who always felt that Europe was a, a distant abstraction. It's not something that affects them in their daily lives. And it's, it's in some ways the argument being made um, where the working class shouldn't have to fight a war that's going to help the, the wealthy. Other groups like socialists led by the uh, prominent leader Eugene V. Debs is going to say, you know what, this entire war is just a war over uh, banking profits. And he's going to kind of attack European nations as well as the United States nation of just fighting for a chance to gain more territory and kind of maintain their assets. So why would we again put working class Americans at risk, uh, our young boys to die, for J.P. Morgan to get a cut of his if his loans. Yeah, and the last two groups we have listed, the progressives and the suffragists, were similar in the sense that war is a distraction from the most important things, which is continuing to improve our society here. So the progressives that, um, you know, Wilson was kind of coveting for his re-election campaign, needing them to probably get re-elected, he's concerned that they believe that the war is going to prevent us from solving the problems here. And the women know, well, once again, there's going to be another war, just like the Civil War, to postpone our goal of suffrage. There were other factors that shaped public opinion as well. Most Americans, as we said before, supported Britain and France, and it was more because uh, the autocratic ruler known as Kaiser Wilhelm was just kind of bizarre. His behaviors that were published in the newspapers really kind of gave a very easy scapegoat for the the, cru the, cru the cruelty of the you know warlike or belligerent Hun, as they would call them. Uh, ethnic influences, of course, uh, weighed, uh, allowed people to weigh in on this issue. 1914, first and second generation Ameri immigrants will make up 30% of the U.S. population. So obviously German Americans are going to be more sympathetic to their homeland. Irish Americans at this time are going to support Germany and the Central Powers only because they're resentful of British imperialistic rule. So they're going to see this as a opportunity to dismantle the British yoke in their empire. And of course, Italian-Americans are going to support the Allies after they kind of switch sides uh, in, in 1915. Yeah, and, and within that, you know, the Irish also, there's a lot of turmoil within their own country in terms of their resistance of British rule and right. pending independence. Yeah, the Easter uprising Yeah, in and all those things are happening kind of in parallel timeline to this. So, um, the overall overwhelming majority of Americans, though, because of how connected we are to English and British culture, we have the similar language, political traditions, most of our law is based on British common law. You know, the, Wilson himself was Scotch-English descent. All these things played into the fact that most Americans identified with the Allies, and we always have uh, had a special connection with Britain. That plays into also the fact that British war propaganda was right. important in helping that along. U.S. opinion was heavily influenced by a lot of the British reports of all these terrible German atrocities and not necessarily maybe giving the entire story. Similar to kind of the yellow journalism in terms of following the facts that fit the narrative that you want to sell to the American people. So most of the war news that is bringing brought to uh, America from Europe is coming through British channels, and that we have to acknowledge that now, influencing our opinions. Given that there's so many conflicting and varying opinions on what to do in terms of entering this conflict, the election of 1916 poses a very interesting challenge for Woodrow Wilson, who was well aware that he won the presidency in 1912 due to a split in the, the Republican Party. He has to remain as progressive, but without looking weak to back down from a fight. 
It was also very interesting during this election. Roosevelt decides to abandon his, the third party known as the Bull Moose Party and declines the progressive wing of the Republican Party's nomination. And he joins the Republicans to nominate the popular Charles Evans Hughes to be their nominee. So now Wilson has only one contender. Uh, it's going to be hyper-competitive. And Roosevelt endorsed Charles Evans Hughes. So it kind of you see an emergence or a temporary alliance with the progressive wing and the conservative wing within the Republican Party. Wilson has to kind of really dangle on this tightrope. Wilson will prepare for a close election, and he rallies behind the slogan, he kept us out of war. And the Democratic strength of the South and the West was able to reelect Wilson in a very, very, very close election. Yeah, so I think it's important to recognize, like you mentioned, that his very careful selection of his motto or his um, slogan is focused on the American tradition of you know, non-involvement. Right. And catering to that idea is what helped him win. And then, uh, you know, uniquely, once he wins election, based on the South and the West, now all of a sudden going to war seems a little bit more possible because he has four more years to kind of excuse it. So in April 1917, uh, only a month after being sworn in, Wilson decides to ask Congress for a declaration of war against Germany, which I find ironic in terms of, well, now that I'm reelected, I can do what I want, or what's a little bit less of a consequence. Um, so why was this suddenly a change? Well, the first thing was the continued unrestricted submarine warfare we've already spoken about, but also the emergence of what you all must remember from last year, the Zimmerman telegram. So the conflict and the tension within Mexico and the United States um, made this possible in that time period, and the, the floating of Arthur Zimmerman offering to help Mexico win back the lands we they lost to the United States or Mexican War was part of what this support was about. But then the third element is the Russian Revolution. Yeah, at the time, the Russians uh, were uh, having a little internal conflict and strife on their own, in which uh, there are many wings and factions of the Communist Party and the Nationalist Party that overthrew the, um, you know, the the incompetent czar regime. And there was fear, not only within American circles, but in European channels, that a withdrawal from the war by Russian forces would open up the Eastern Front and it would allow Germany to allocate all of their forces on the Western Front. And this is something that the British and the French could not allow. And when that was happening, it kind of prompted further British uh, propaganda to convince Americans to join this war effort, so um, a, a lot of a lot of this is something that you already heard of and learned about in global history, but it's it's important to kind of note. So finally, we get the declaration of war by April 2nd, 1917. Wilson asked Congress to declare war on Germany. By April 6th, the majority of congressmen votes to declare war. It is important to note that there are some pacifists that reject the vote, such as Republican progressive Robert La Follette of Wisconsin and the first congresswoman, Jeanette Rankin, who voted Montana. no from Montana. So there are some naysayers, some people that still believe that this is either a conspiracy to get J.P. Morgan's money back or something that would destroy progressive policies further. So that leads us to the mobilization. Once the decision to go to war has been made, you must now prepare yourself for that. So um, we have to mobilize quickly because if Germany takes advantage of the absence of the Russian uh, uh, Russian army on the Eastern Front, that could be, lead to disaster for the Allies. So our industry and labor become an important connection with the government. So Wilston makes temporary wartime agencies and commissions to try and make this as fluid as possible, the most important being the War Industries Board. So the tactics that the progressives used 
to kind of clean up the streets and the cities and the municipalities and, and the areas of our country, those same tactics of scientific management are now going to be applied in a war preparation status. So we're going to have a lot of uh, commissions such as the War Industries Board that will be run by a man named Bernard Baruch. He's a Wall Street broker who will volunteer to use his extensive context in injured industry, and he's going to establish set production quotas, uh, a certain amount of, of products that need to be produced by the end of the month, and centralized control over raw materials and prices. This is a really important moment in our country's history because the lines between free enterprise government, uh, excuse me, free enterprise economy and industries right. and our government get a little bit blurred because, you know, many of these industries are now receiving government contracts. The War Industries Board is kind of an intermediary between the government and industry, and it's an effort to try and let um, these companies know this is something you can do for your country, and many of them are eager to do their patriotic duty in helping these um, things get done and meeting those quotas. Other boards are are going to be in the form of like distributing or rationing food, such as the Food Administration, which will persuade uh, local Americans or American citizens to ration their meals so it can serve for the troops abroad. This will be run by a man named Herbert Hoover, a very, very, very um, pragmatic per, uh, planner, and he's going to be known more popularly as president during our economic crisis, but he's going to be a very distinguished engineer, and he will take charge. The conservation drive will pay off. In two years, overseas shipment of food will triple. Yeah, and this also continues with another important thing to conserve is fuel. So Harry Garfield volunteers to run it, an industrialist that is focused on conserving coal. So all non-essential factories are encouraged to close, and daylight savings time goes into effect for one of the first times ever to try and promote less of a need for the production of electricity so we can save coal for our military. The Railroad Administration under William McAdoo will, of course, take public control of the roads. This is when the government will actually take over the railroads to coordinate traffic and promote standardized railroad equipment only because time is of the necessity and they couldn't afford um, maybe um, uncooperative workers or uncooperative business leaders to not get in the way. So this is a time where, again, as Mr. Copeland has said, the, the, the lines between government and, and free enterprise kind of blurred during this and time. similar to some of the things that Lincoln did during the Civil Correct. War, to utilize the railroad to help us um, generate what we need for the military. And the last thing is the National War Labor Board. So uh, basically put a temporary halt on all disputes between workers and employers as a head. Basically the fact that um, we can't afford to have stoppages in this moment. Those wages rose. Uh, Eight-hour workday became more common, and union membership increased after the war because labor ended up winning some of the concessions that had been denied. So that's a brief description of how the government organized itself to prepare for war, but they still needed money and finance and capital to kind of pay for all of this. And what really happened miraculously within a very short amount of time, the government was able to ma raise $33 billion in just two years with a combination of taxes and bonds. How are they able to do that, and how are they going to drum up so much support from union members, uh, progressives, uh, capitalists, industrialists. And I really attribute it to uh, a man named George Creel, who will take charge of a committee called the Committee of Public Information, which will enlist artists, writers, vaudeville performers, and movie stars to depict the heroism of the boys, U.S. soldiers fighting, known as Doughboys, mm -hmm. and the villainy of the Kaiser. And this is going to basically be a propaganda machine to really pump up support for yeah, the war. Yeah, you have all of our um, media at the moment and really popular culture focusing on this 
it becomes part of the lifeblood of the American uh, experience during this era. And everybody realizes the significance. Everybody realizes the importance of supporting. It's more likely that you're going to sacrifice and be willing to conserve your consumption and, and ration your food when you see these images every single day and you can see these performances. And it connects emotionally with the American public. And then that also makes it a little bit easier to also have a draft because people feel their honorable duty to get um, serve their country in this time of need. First time we've had a draft since uh, the Civil War, and it's known as the Selective Service Act, which is passed in 1917. This calls for all men between 21 and 30 to register. Um, it ends up being a lottery. 2.8 million men are called initially, and there's an additional 2 million who volunteer to serve, which is really important, and it plays to the, pro the effectiveness of that propaganda. Almost 400,000 African Americans also serve, but they are relegated to a segregated section of the army, and few are permitted to do anything other than some of the menial tasks. And despite this description, William Du Bois is still going to encourage blacks to join the war effort because he will believe that blacks can achieve rights at home by showing their bravery and honor in Europe. Uh, one black regiment in particular, known as the Harlem Hellfighters, will win particular respect for their bravery and competence on the battlefield. Despite this, however, most Americans will deny these accomplishments, and racial discrimination will occur after the war to the disappointment of civil rights leaders. So again, patriotism reaches the black community, and they effectively call to the uh, call to the message of their government for war and, and participation, but they did not receive the respect in return. Yeah. So uh, as we move forward, we have to look at also the civil liberties that our country guarantees all of its citizens and all the people within the borders um, and how this plays into um, the complicated relationship of times at war and war powers that we saw during the Civil War, Lincoln and sometimes taking executive orders to limit these civil liberties. It, times of war is when they're the most vulnerable. So often you have this term war hysteria, and sometimes it, it's um, an exaggerated sense or an extreme sense of patriotism where this hypervigilance and fear can play into that. So we have an excuse often in this time period for nativist groups to take out a lot of their prejudices by charging minorities of being possibly disloyal. The American Protective League specifically had a campaign called Hate the Hun. And so you have families like my own German um, ancestry that all of a sudden started to downplay their German ancestry and their, their pride in their own culture for their own safety and for their own uh, um, proving their American patriotism kind of gets extinguished. So that's part of why my name changed from Keplin to Copeland. And not only culturally, uh, these German-Americans being attacked, but also economically. Under the Secretary of Labor, manufacturers are going to refuse to hire German-Americans, citing that they could possibly slow down the progress as an attempt to, to sabotage the war, uh, war preparations. But perhaps the two most popular and well-known acts that really kind of attack civil liberties are the Espionage Act in 1917 and the Sedition Act in 1918. It will be passed to punish those who obstruct the war effort. For the Espionage Act, it will authorize the imprisonment of up to 20 years who tried to stop the draft or incite rebellion in the army. Uh, the Sedition Act prohibited anyone from making, quote, disloyal or abusive remarks from the U.S. government. About 2,000 people under this act will be prosecuted under these laws, and half of whom were, will be convicted and jailed, including uh, Eugene V. Debs will be sentenced to 10 years in federal prison for speaking out against the war. And one of the most important landmark Supreme Court cases that we're going to talk about this year comes out of this uh, conflict. Schenck versus the United States is where the Supreme Court ends up upholding the constitutionality of the Espionage Act, stating that specifically free speech could be limited when it presented 
or represented a clear and present danger to public safety. So this is why it's illegal to say um, fire in a crowded theater. Whenever you're shouting something that causes a public disruption, there are limits to our, our free speech um, when it comes to these issues, and that's all based on this Supreme Court case. Another important factor from the war effort is um, when many of the men travel across to Europe to, to serve, we also see that the absence in the factories gives women more opportunities. So many women assume factory jobs, and these efforts end up helping convince Wilson, as well as the rest of Congress, whoever was resistant to it before, to pass the 19th Amendment at the conclusion of the war. So now that we were prepared for war, what did we do during it? Well, in June of 1918, we sent our armed forces, uh, led by John General J. Pershing, to fight against the German advance. Uh, the operative word in this type of force is expeditionary. Uh, what that means is it's sort of like an expedition, and it wanted to underscore and highlight uh, America's independence from other allied regiments and forces, to the chagrin and the frustration of the British and French soldiers. We wouldn't so, allow the British to command our troops. Right, yeah. and, and, and you can understand why on various reasons, but um, this type of segregated leadership um, contributed to the poor management of troops, and we will see more of a merging um, and integration of Allied forces in World War II. But anyway, we are very successful along the West River and through the Aragon Forest. Uh, we will be able to push the Germans back towards their borders. By November 11th, 1918, Germany will sign an armistice in which they agree to surrender their arms and give up much of their navy and evacuate occupied territory. U.S. casualties total, combat deaths, 49,000, and the total U.S. deaths that include disease and injury, 112,000. Um, the reason why we're giving those numbers is that it pales in comparison to the French and British and Russian and German uh, soldiers. Um, we entered the war late, and because of that, a lot of European politicians are going to think that they're the ones who ought to determine the world order after it, not the United States. And that's one of the things that we speak about. Wilson had this little bit of arrogance to him, wanting to be right. the one that points out this is the way the world should work going forward to ensure something like this doesn't happen. He calls for peace without victory in that um, one of the things that he wants to do is create that new world order you mentioned. We need to break from tradition where everything is conquered territory, gets pushed back, someone's reconquered, and then it right. sets the stage for the next conflict. So the effort of making the peace starts in January of 1917. And what Wilson calls for is peace without victory. That meaning the typical victory of this age was all about conquest, spoils of war, This they're going to carve territory from your country to be ours now. And what he wanted to do was break from that tradition and create a new world order that was more focused on maintaining peace. And that's why he outlined this um, in his 14 points. That was his plan. Very idealistic, but revolutionary for the time because he recognized the importance of freedom, uh, freedom of, of the seas in order for trade to take place, um, treaties. National armaments, reduction of those things are important to maintaining, um, to avoid the militarism that led to the World War I outbreak. Uh, and self-determination for many nations around the world are really important. So um, the, the last one, the establishment of the League of Nations being one of the most important for him. So the conclusion of this was the Paris Peace Conference with the Treaty and the Treaty of Versailles is what we end up getting out of that in January of 1919. <clears throat> it's the first time a U.S. president will travel abroad to attend a diplomatic conference, and he's going to personally go there to push for the 14 points. 
Republicans are going to criticize Wilson for attending without seeking their advice, however. In fact, he's going to intentionally not invite Henry Cabot Lodge, who was uh, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at the time, a big wig in terms of foreign policy. And uh, because of partisan politics, he's just going to snub him. And, and some historians have noted had he invited Republicans to come along with him, perhaps there would have been more support of the Treaty of Versailles. Um, there were many diplomats that attended the conference, not just the, the victorious European powers. Diplomats from China came, diplomats from Vietnam, uh, diplomats from all over the world. But people usually associate the Paris conference with the big four that really met to discuss the terms of ending it. Uh, for the United States, it was Woodrow Wilson. For France, it was a man named George Clemenceau. From Great Britain, it was David Lloyd George and Vittorio Orlando from Italy. The other big three did not share Wilson's vision for a new world order. However, as Mr. Copeland mentioned, uh, victory to them meant the spoils of war, the acquisition of territory, reparations, ports. Um, even during the war, they were making significant treaties of cutting up new colonies, especially in the Middle East. Um, so there was an understanding that when someone gets conquered, the victors kind of get the, 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 the territories. Wilson, of course, is going to push back up upon that. So there's going to be a natural tension between Wilson and the other three. So he's going to use the, the conference to kind of push against the territorial claims and a push against this concept of punishing Germany. However, as the conference unfurls, Wilson reluctantly will agree to compromise on most of his points because he still wants them to accept the concept of the League of Nations. And that's where we have the peace terms that are finally settled on in June of 1919. So as we remember from last year, I'm sure Germany is disarmed, stripped of all of its colonies right. in Asia and Africa, and they are forced to accept full responsibility for the war when we know the truth is something else. Um, now. French occupation of the Rhineland for 15 years, and then, of course, the reparations to Great Britain and France are something that cripples the German economy for the next two decades. So the territories once controlled by Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Russia are now taken and divided up all by the Allies, and that's where we have the countries of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Finland, Poland. All these new nations, including Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, are established, and the signers of these treaty, the one thing they do do that Wilson is happy with is they do decide to join the League of Nations. But now we have to see if America will sign on to Wilson's plan. According to the Constitution, Wilson needs two-thirds of the Senate to ratify the treaty proposed in Paris. And a lot of Republicans are already immediately upset that Wilson did not invite them to Europe. And they raised objections about the treaty, and particularly Article X, the membership clause of the League of Nations. They worried that U.S. membership in the League would entangle the country into a series of unnecessary conflicts. Republicans will win back the majority in House and the Senate in 1918 with the midterm elections, which of course gives them a very powerful leverage in terms of ratification. Wilson had to appeal to the public to vote for the Democratic Act as an act of patriotic loyalty. Um, but Wilson had to ultimately compromise with adversaries like Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. So what happens is there's going to be a big battle that happens over the ratification, and two groups will form within the Republican Party in response to this treaty. One group were known as the Irreconcilables, which vowed never to ratify the treaty, and others were reservationists that were willing to sign the treaty if there were certain amendments. Wilson decided to appeal directly to the public rather than deal with reservationists, and some historians have speculated that this was his biggest folly yet. He went on a speaking tour defending the original provisions of the treaty without any amendments, and all this talking and all this supporting and all this traveling 
It's going to lead to a, it's going to lead to a, a, a zenith in September twenty fifth, nineteen nineteen, when he kind of collapses, and a few days later, Wilson suffers from a stroke, a stroke in which he will never fully recover. So what we end up having is with Wilson incapacitated, the original treaty is, ends up being rejected in the Senate without him being able to advocate for it. It definitely plays a role in its defeat. Amendments were added and presented on the Senate floor, but he directs his allies in the Senate to reject the amended version. It would be all or nothing for his, this idealist, and that's the, one of the major failures is that instead of realizing that some important steps can be made, we can make some amendments because then I will get what I wanted uh, overall. The purity of what he wanted was the mult, uh, ultimately his failure. And this treaty is officially defeated for a second time. So in 1921, a year or so later, U.S. officially makes a separate peace with Germany in an entirely other treaty, um, which is unique for this era. So um, for a more thorough analysis of the, the issues surrounding the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations and the obstacles that Wilson had, we will have a short um, bonus essay read by Mr. V in the f following podcast, which will be posted with the Lecture Note podcast on Google Classroom. We will see you next time. Take care.